if we continue to do bad policy and enact bad policy and procedures, we will continue to have the same tragic situations and circumstances that litter our news feeds, our timelines, our televisions, day in and day out with no respite for any of us. In addition, if we are only going to make reactive changes, we are only addressing the symptoms of the root cause of the issue. It is as if, you know, someone has a cold and you are just going to give them Kleenex for their runny nose. You're not going to do anything to address maybe, you know, uh, a virus or anything else that is causing this runny nose. You're just like, here's some Kleenex. It's also only half ply, so it's not going to work that well. Good luck. May the odds be ever in your favor. And so... You know, we have to understand that these reactionary solutions are, are incomplete and they're beneath us. If we're going to be honest about this conversation, those of us that are in higher ed, whether we are professors, instructors, researchers, student leaders, some combination of all of the above, reactionary solutions are beneath us and we need to do better as individuals, we need to do better collectively, and we need to be encouraging our colleagues to do better. Hello and welcome to Student Affairs Now. I'm your host, Heather Shea. Today on the podcast, we are discussing campus policing and student activism for Black and Brown lives with scholars, activists, and students. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We hope you'll find these conversations make a contribution to the field and are restorative to the profession. And we release new episodes every week on Wednesdays. You can find us at studentaffairsnow.com or on any of the social media channels. This episode is brought to you by Stylus Publishing. Stylus is proud to be a sponsor of the Student, now, Student Affairs Now podcast. Browse their student affairs, diversity, and professional development titles at styluspub.com. You can also use the promo code SANOW for 30% off all books plus free shipping. You can find Stylus on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter at Stylus Pub. This episode is also sponsored by Anthology. Transform your student experience and advance co-curricular learning with Anthology Engage. With Engage, you are able to easily manage student organizations, efficiently plan events, and truly understand student involvement to continuously improve your engagement efforts at your institution. Learn more by visiting anthology.com slash engage. As I mentioned, I am your host, Heather Shea. My pronouns are she, her, and hers, and I am broadcasting from East Lansing, Michigan, near the campus of Michigan State University. MSU occupies the ancestral homelands of the Anishinaabe, Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Ottawa, and Potawatomi peoples. Before I introduce our panelists today, in full transparency, I want to make a quick statement about my own positionality. For those who are listening, not watching, I identify as a white cisgender woman, and I'm also the daughter of a former police sergeant. It's been nearly 20 years since my dad retired, but he and I have had several long conversations about murders of black and brown people at the hands of police officers, and he agrees with my anger. I wonder if maybe it's time to not just rethink or tweak, but drastically limit or eliminate law enforcement from our campuses. There are multiple conversations going on around the country, and many of them carry high emotional weight. We at Student Affairs Now have a platform to explore this topic from a singular perspective, abolition. And I'm thrilled to have a panel today to address this head on. 
What would removing police present from college and university campuses look like? When we say defund the police, what does that mean? This is all while I am excited about the people who joined me on the podcast today. Um, so these four individuals are sharing space with me. Each of you brings a, a fantastic and unique vantage point on the movement for racial justice. So joining me are Dr. Charles H.F. Davis III, an assistant professor of higher education at the University of Michigan, where his work broadly focuses on race and racism, and where he serves as the principal investigator for the hashtag Police Free Campus Project. Charles introduced me to the other three panelists, Dr. Aaron Corbett, the CEO of Second, Second Chance Educational Alliance and the coordinator of the Quinnipiac University Prison Project. Jude Paul Dizon is a doctoral candidate in the Urban Education Policy Program at the Rossier School of Education at the University of Southern California. His dissertation is a case study of campus policing. And Dial Karendi. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Was I close? Okay. Uh, the student body president emerita and current ranking representative to the University of Minnesota Board of Regents. Welcome to each of you. Um, looking forward to hearing from each of you. And as you introduce yourself, if you could please tell us a little bit about your interest in and work around this topic. And we're going to start today with Charles. Uh, well, thank you, Heather, so much for having this conversation, for inviting us into uh, having this conversation, and I'm just so thankful for my colleagues who thought it not robbery to join us, who bring such expertise in a variety of areas that I think are really critical for us to discuss. Um, so I was actually introduced to the topic through my work as a community organizer and as an activist. Um, I had been doing quite a bit of work through uh, local Black Lives Matter chapters, through the Dream Defenders down in Florida, uh, that really got me interested in the notion of abolition in the context of policing. But as a higher education scholar, uh, more and more it was becoming important for me to think about what does this mean for college and universities. Um, and so part of that led to um, an op-ed that both Jude and I were able to co-author that really stemmed from the work that Jael had already been doing at the University of Minnesota um, that raised sort of this recurring point in higher education history in that anything that has been progressive uh, with regard to broadly as we frame diversity, equity, and inclusion has really been the result of campus and community organizers. Um, and so very much, you know, a part of that is to carry on my own work and thinking about how student activism is happening um, in today's world, how digital technologies are being leveraged, both with regard to expanding political education opportunities uh, to developing solidarities within and across campuses and how that all has sort of manifested in this as we're calling it the Black Lives Matter moment. Thanks so much for being here. I am really grateful that we have such great activism happening in the state of Michigan. And it was good to see you on the front page of the Chronicle the other day as well. So um, Dr. Corbett, AG of Wakanda, Tell us more about you. Hello. Absolutely. Hello, Heather. Thank you so much for having me. And Charles, thank you so much for thinking of me and the work that happens um, in the higher ed and prison space. I come to so much of this work um, through personal reasons. Um, so my work in prison education, higher ed and prison is, is both personal and professional. I have several family members and friends and folks in the community who are just as impacted, um, whether they have been incarcerated, are currently incarcerated, have been on some sort of community supervision, the impact of law enforcement and its overreach is just so prevalent in so many of the communities. Um, the other piece that 
that brings me to this work was my experience working with the Catal Center for Health Equity and Justice, um, which is a community organizing organization that focuses its state level work um, in Connecticut and New York. And it was through working there with Lorenzo Jones, who was a longtime, longtime organizer here in Connecticut, and Gabriel Saya, who did a long, long stint at DPA um, before branching out on his own. Those were the two folks who really helped form the foundation of how I think about organizing and activism within the context of college and prison, how to approach that from a liberatory mindset, um, and how to talk to incarcerated students who um, who are under a lot of other oppressive structures um, than free world students. And so that presents a lot of difficulty when we talk about activism. How do they find themselves to be civically engaged? And how do we work around, you know, sort of the the barriers that are put up in their way. And so, so much of that, all of that um, is, is why I'm happy to be here uh, today. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Jude Paul. Yes, thank you. Good morning. Um, yeah, thank you so much, Heather, for having me on. And Charles, thank you for bringing me in. Um, and Aaron and Jael, you, your work also inspires me as well. So I'm so grateful to share space with everyone this morning. Um, so again, my name is Jude, uh, pronouns are he, him, Shah. And uh, for me, you know, what led me to start thinking about policing in higher ed started when I was a practitioner. So prior to my doctoral studies, I worked for five years in student affairs, uh, primarily in a multicultural center type position. And it was in 2014 um, that a student of mine, uh, 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 at the time he was a third year undergraduate, uh, black male student. Um, he came to my office one day, and this was like in early February, and he told me how during, um, while he was on campus during for like the winter semester um, that he was taking a course in January, that he had been stopped and detained by campus police officers, that he was questioned uh, whether he had stolen a phone, and then was subsequently brought into the station and detained there for several hours and then released without um, much of any kind of like explanation or apology. And for me, you know, the student always, whenever I saw him, he was always dressed uh, in a blazer, uh, a button up shirt of some kind. That was always like his look. And, um, and I'm not sure whether he was trying to like maybe contrast that, but I remember that when he told me the story and came to my office, he told me that that day on campus that he was stopped by the police, that that was the day that he chose to wear more casual clothes. Um, and so, you know, for me, I think as a, as a student affairs educator, you know, I took the time to listen, ask him how I could support him. Um, you know, I think at that time he had, uh, you know, emotionally managed himself. I wanted to let, you know, me know because we had already had this ongoing relationship. Um, and that was kind of like, in the moment that was like, you know, I think, you know, I did, you know, what I could do in, the, in that moment. But I, I left thinking like, uh, being feeling jarred and thinking about how, um, you know, I advise him, I listen to him, but I also am in a role where I'm supposed to call the campus police and I'm supposed to utilize the campus police for various types of situations. And that has been my training as a student affairs practitioner. Um, and so I had this moment of realization of, yeah, again, what I never really questioned as an expectation of my job. Um, and I began to think about, uh, you know, well, how does that fit when 
I also at the same time am critical of policing, that I've been critical of policing off in society, off campus, but I realized in that moment of talking to my student that I had this maybe contradictory relationship with the policing on campus where I could be critical, but yet I'm expected to call them and I never questioned that. And so realizing that I had this, uh, I suppose, um, like unexamined area of my practice unsettled me greatly. Um, and I continued to feel unsettled by that. And because of that discomfort, when I started my graduate program, I decided to think about well, how could I better advance racial justice in higher ed? And I began to look more into the literature on campus policing, um, which has led me you know, to further look at that, collaborate with folks like Charles. Um, and, I'm, and I'm excited to get to talk with you today about what I've come to learn and reflect upon as well. Thank you so much. It's great to hear that background story because that tension moment often provides that research question, right? So excited to hear more about your dissertation and work. Um, Jael, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Tell us about your work in and around Black Lives Matter and policing. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me here today, Heather, and thank you, Charles, for looping me in in this conversation. Um, my name is Jael, and I use pronouns like she and hers, and I think when I think of kind of campus policing, I don't think it started as maybe my understanding of how it applied to higher education, but rather I can remember um, when Trayvon Martin was murdered and just feeling very helpless in that moment and wondering how this translated to other areas of life, like where I remember the time my parents were not comfortable with me protesting. They're like, I, I don't want you out there. And I just remember thinking like, what can I do? Like, what am I supposed to do? What am I, where's my role in this process? And, you know, you look back at 99 with Rodney King and things like that happening. Um, and I was about one at the time and now looking at Trayvon Martin and still being kind of in middle school at the time and then getting on campus and seeing these different things continuously happen. But the moment I think I realized the issue um, higher education didn't get to be siloed was when we had our own issues on our own campus. And I was asking our student affair leaders, what are we going to do about this? Like students are telling you they don't feel safe. What are we going to do about this? And it felt like I was asking the same question and nobody not even didn't have the answer, but wasn't even ready to conversate about. Nobody was ready to talk about that this was actually an issue on our campus because the students that were saying it were an issue were such a small percentage, right? Like everybody else on the aggregate maybe felt safe, but this small section of students was saying this and it was very frustrating to continuously hear that. And when the murder of George Floyd happened, you know, 15, 20 minutes from campus, I was like, you don't get to be silent about this anymore, right? We don't get to not have an answer. We don't get to not have a conversation. In fact, those moments have long gone and passed. At this point, you need to do something because this is happening right next to your campus. And if your values are what they say they are, then you're going to take action on these matters. Wow, having a, uh, having a student leader in the middle of this conversation today, I think is really powerful because we often talk around um, and about students, but hearing your exact experiences, I'm so grateful that you're here as well. Um, so Charles, let's begin by talking about the movement and its origins. I think some might uh, be thinking, oh, abolish the police is a new movement for racial justice, but the conversation's been obviously going on for a long time. Um, and it's hard to understand our present without looking back at the history of the pol of the police on our college and university campuses and how that um, is constructed. So can you give us a bit of background about the conversation when it began and a little bit about the role of police in, in higher ed history, I guess? 
Yeah, great question. Um, so I think, you know, historians have this understanding um, as they articulated of presentism and that we often see things kind of as they are devoid of the larger historical context, right? Or, or how some uh, CRT scholars might think of this as like a historicism to some extent. And a lot of the conversation, not just about policing as an institution, but about abolition and about defunding um, is often devoid of this larger sort of historical context. And so one of the things that we know through the work of a number of uh, uh, community-based scholars, as well as historians who have documented the relationship, is that the fundamental understanding of abolition, at least in this country, is deeply tied to the abolition of slavery. Um, and so when we think about the relationship of the police that primarily is generated as a sort of runaway slave patrol, then we see that there is a clear relationship with the founding of this nation, one that's obviously grounded in the indigenous uh, genocide and dispossession of lands from indigenous peoples through the enslavement of, of Africans, um, and the state, if you will, at that time, using a law enforcement-like structure to, con to continue to enforce those sets of power relationships. And so when we think about the abolitionist movement, we know perhaps the most uh, prominent abolitionist uh, of them all, Harriet Tubman, um, who we often celebrate and talk about uh, in particular ways that often are devoid of nuance, but also the number of other abolitionist organizations from the South through the North being at a place like Michigan, we know that, you know, this was a sort of place that led to the departure of many folks to get free into Canada, right? We have this beautiful memorial down uh, town Detroit uh, that sort of symbolizes that. And so abolitionism uh, both involves certainly individuals who demonstrate a level of courage, of bravery, but also networks of individuals who are committed to this cause of one saying generally that enslavement in and of itself is an institution that has no place to be here, right? If we recognize and understand us to all be human beings, uh, but more importantly, um, that there is something that we can do about that, right? Whether that is in an effort to reduce some level of harm or to eliminate some form of harm to help people circumvent what we could easily understand today as a, as a type of state violence. Um, and so I think we have to make those historical connections very, very clear. Um, and then when we think about uh, uh, the sort of through line of this that um, as we consider the critical understanding of slavery as evident of something that has not necessarily been completely abolished, but instead transformed vis-a-vis -vis the you know, uh, process of mass incarceration and the criminal uh, justice system, that all these things are inexorably linked. So when we're talking about abolition, uh, even in the higher education context, it isn't just about policing, right? Part of it is about this, um, this larger apparatus of commitment to this notion of state control, of surveillance, of domination, of boundary enforcement. And so abolition, I think, is attempting to get at much of those different pieces that we are seeing uh, very much grounded in what's happening to communities, right? Because a lot of um, this conversation about police abolition isn't just about what happens on campus. It's not just about faculty, staff, and students, but in fact, in something that's uh, detailed really brilliantly in DeBerry and Baldwin's new book, um, is the relationship between post-secondary institutions and the communities within which they're situated and then how campus police have really provided a uh, means to enforce, again, these types of boundaries uh, that I'm very sure that uh, Jude and others will talk about. Um, and so, again, thinking about this from the defund now perspective, right, we've sort of seen in various levels of uh, uh, memification, if you will, right, that the notion of defunding the police sounds radical until you realize that we've been defunding so many other sort of social services and things that advance the public good, like education, right? Um, many of us have been, um, you know, part and parcel of public uh, colleges and universities, right, that are there intended to engage and to educate a broader public for the benefit of society as a whole. Um, but yet we see that state appropriations continue to decline. We can certainly look at K-12 education that remains as, if not more segregated than it was before. Um, and so this notion of defunding is also grounded in this idea that our public institutions should serve a public good, 
right? They should be able to provide services that are sustaining, that are humanizing. And so that conversation has been going on for many, many decades. But it seems that when we turn our attention to this institution of policing, it sort of recenters this notion of what policing actually does, which is fundamentally to protect white people and white property. Thank you so much for that background, because I, I do agree that I think that we need to understand the context and the, the use of the word and the language, I think, is one of the more valuable um, components there as well. Um, I love talking public good versus private good and state funded versus state located. Like we're moving to this, like, you know, we used to be state funded. Then we used to be state supported. Now we're state located. But what does that exactly look like? Um, dude, can you talk a little bit about kind of what's currently going on with policing on college and university campuses and about a bit about that moment um, or that movement that Charles was talking about re regarding on and away from campus and the town gown relationships that are occurring? Sure, yeah. Well, you know, first I'll just say that there is a most uh, clear crisis of legitimacy uh, when it comes to campus policing. Um, you know, we are in a moment in which uh, there is a lot of attention, right? And that's why we're here in this podcast, uh, questioning, well, why do we have campus police? What is their function? What is the nature of their work? What are the actual consequences of what they do, not just the purported benefits or purported rationale for why they are supposedly needed, right? This is all being directly confronted right now, uh, which I think is really um, important uh, for higher education to move forward in advancing racial justice. Um, so stemming from that, I think what I'd like to say is, um, you know, campus policing, when you look at the literature, when you just also listen to the discourse about campus safety and campus crime, um, it's pretty much restricted to this idea that campus police are needed because there is something called campus crime, um, whether that's real or imagined or perceived um, or feared. Um, and also that campus police historically, in terms of, you know, what scholars have written about, are, are consistently framed as being something different than the city of police, that campuses in the 1960s as a result of student protests and demonstrations, uh, felt motivated that they should have their own police force that they could, that administrators could better direct and ensure that it was appropriate, whatever that might mean for the campus community as if they are supposed to be nicer, gentler than the city police mm -hmm. coming onto campus at any moment's notice, right? That's like the narrative. Um, and I think that as a result, um, that I think that's a narrative that has continued to be bought into and supported over the years as campus policing has only become more institutionalized and expanded and expanded since the 60s. Um, and I think consequently, there's a few issues that I think uh, students, staff, faculty, community members are being aware of now, which is that one campus police, we put that word campus in front of them as if it is supposed to mean something different, but they are essentially the police. So um, as just like any other city police department, there's many similarities. So I think one, what I would like to say is that um, I'm gonna just read some data from a national survey of campus law enforcement agencies. Uh, and this was a survey of 861 post-secondary institutions. So 69% of officers employed by a college campus are sworn officers, which means that they were trained at a police academy, just like city police officers are trained at a police academy, 65% uh, uh, carry some kind of gun, 63% um, use pepper spray, 27% carry a taser. These are weapons that are also used by city police officers. Um, and so to the extent that campus police are, have been portrayed as something different than the city police, I think that A is empirically uh, you know, not as easy to say and that, there's, and that essentially we can look at 
um, that these are in, in many ways identical with city police. And I think that's being confronted now. I also think that with campus policing, um, what's being confronted is the way are the ways in which their uh, duties and responsibilities have gradually increased over time. So rather than just attending to, again, what is quote unquote the campus, you know, 86% have an arrest jurisdiction off campus and also parole juris uh, patrol jurisdiction off campus as well. And I think, uh, you know, different news stories, uh, you know, if you if we're looking at, let's say, the University of Chicago um, or other universities and looking at local dynamics, uh, you know, people have reported um, local residents have reported negative interactions with campus police officers. And there's a question there as to why are private citizens unattached to the university being policed by university employees. Um, and uh, I think also what's come to light even more so again recently has been um, one thing being called the 1033 program, which has allowed uh, Department of Defense, you know, military level equipment being dispersed and loaned to police departments, which have included campus police departments as well. And so you also see um, this growing awareness of the militarized nature of campus policing. And so to the extent, again, that this idea that they're supposed to be friendly, gentle, gentle with the students, um, we see again these other contradictory aspects of their actual practice. And I think just lastly, what I'd like to say is that, um, you know, this focus on crime, uh, preventing mass violence, preventing a mass shooting, for example, all of which are, of course, leg legitimate, you know, concerns. Um, you know, I think for me, what I would like to say is that there's been a, a huge neglect of the other consequences of having a police force on campus. And so, um, you know, historically, up until now, political activism um, is often targeted first by the, or the police are often the first response by administrators to political demonstrations on campus. Uh, so there's an issue there of like free, free speech and this idea that higher ed is supposed to be a place of ideas and, and academic freedom, but yet political expression is met with violence. Um, we also, of course, see, continue to see many accounts of racial profiling on, uh, by campus police officers. Um, and so while you know, we are able to easily critique that in the larger public, we don't see this on campus. And so, yeah, I, I just think there's, there's many issues that are coming to the light now with uh, having campus law enforcement. Jill, did you have a thought? I know you said you wanted to say something. Yeah, I actually wanted to respond to Charles real quick because he made a point I think people often forget is it's policing in all of its forms, right? We're not just talking about law enforcement. And I often see this to be most prevalent in K through 12, which is where I often think these conversations ought, need to begin. Um, in its discussing suspensions, right? We're talking about the rate of which our Black and brown children are suspended in contrast to their peers. We're talking about how they're treated in K through five and what they're told, the actions that are made, who's a quote unquote bad kid, or when they take certain actions, the severity of their consequence in, like, in comparison to their peer. And I think there's just been this societal complacency with police treatment, right? We've almost agreed that like, this is the status quo. These are how things are. And so we've almost, um, it seems like parts of our society have just said, like, this is how it's going to be forever. And it doesn't need to be. And I think so much 
and more and more what we're seeing is people are saying this is not what we're going to tolerate, right? Our taxpayer dollars are no longer going to be going into these institutions that are harming and murdering our people. And I remember when I wrote the letter to the University of Minnesota at the time, Black people were being killed at 13.2 times the rate of their white peer in Minneapolis. And that is even when you talk about that number, that's astronomical, right? If any other part of our society was murdering people at that rate, it would not be a question of whether to remove that part of society. It wouldn't be a discussion on whether or not that mattered. And I remember Angela Rice said something that will always resonate resonate with me of like our country promises life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and we're just stuck at life, right? We're fighting for our humanity in a manner that just seems to be so it almost seems sometimes absurd of the fact that we have to almost battle for our humanity. I have to prove to you that I deserve to live. I'm not proving anything else but my mere existence. And so, you know, we talk a lot about bad apples or we talk about this and policing in its inception was racist, right? The tree at, the, the at its root is racist, right? There were supposed to be slave catchers. They were never supposed to protect us. They were never supposed to be our ally. They were never supposed to be there to ensure we were okay. So when people often talk about this communal aspect of law enforcement, well, what community are we talking about? Because they were never intended to actually protect black and brown people. And I'll just jump in to add the, this really important connection. And I appreciate how you introduced um, the Trayvon Martin moment, which we know is like very much an awakening period for young folks that find themselves on campus today, and, and even for, for myself in many regards, but that the Trayvon Martin situation is actually an education problem, right? And this is the thing that the Dream Defenders helped teach us in that Trayvon was suspended from school because of a zero tolerance policy that placed him in Sanford at the time to begin with, right? So there are the climate and conditions that render people more vulnerable in our society that then made possible for George Zimmerman to profile and to kill him then to go unarrested by law enforcement who are again, supposed to, supposedly here to protect and serve and then go unconvicted by the state's attorney's office, right? So there's really important connections that have to be considered as we think about this as educators that there's a symbiotic relationship here, right? And that education produces society but society also produces education. And so what kind of education are we actually creating when we are really organizing this notion of schooling, teaching and learning within the framework of carcerality? Right. And I think that that has to be always at the center point of not creating, as Jude's uh, articulated so brilliantly, this differentiation between how we interpret colleges and universities and the broader society within which they function. Absolutely. That's great. That's great. Thank you. Um, Aaron, I'm curious. I, I think Jael just mentioned something about kind of doing nothing, keeping the status quo. You know, what are the cons of of doing nothing? Um, I think they're, they're apparent, but I think it's good to eliminate those. Uh, you know, there's a lot of complacent people out there. They're just like, this is too hard. We don't want you to talk about it anymore. Um, and then on the other side, if, if making change is important, what are some of the cons potentially? What are we giving up or losing? Um, and then with regard to your work specifically, um, I'm, I'm really curious about how all of this intersects with uh, students who are pursuing their education within a prison. Sure. So, you know, I think before I kind of delve into that, I think it's important to add a little bit of nuance to the conversation in terms of how we think about a particular institution's student body, especially mm -hmm. as there are increasingly more institutions that are starting to offer higher ed and prison programs. Institutions need to understand that those incarcerated students are now part of your student body. 
And so the policies, the practices, the procedures that you have, in particular as they relate to law enforcement, will have an impact on those incarcerated students. They may not be on campus, but they see what's happening. They read literally everything. And so it will certainly have that, that kind of, of effect where incarcerated students are you know, thinking, okay, th- this is the institution that I'm affiliated with for these programs, but this institution is also tied, right, as Charles was saying, symbiotically to this larger structure of law enforcement, surveillance, and supervision. And so I think the first step, you know, at least as my work is concerned, is to make sure that we are pretty comprehensive in understanding who our student population is and how student affairs as a field can also reach out to those students and say, hey, let's talk about what a student group looks like inside of a prison. Let's talk about what student leadership looks like inside of a prison. Right. If, if there were programs that were happening at the University of Minnesota, was Jael able to go into facilities and talk about her student leadership role and build leadership capacity with those students who were incarcerated? I think that largely student affairs has ignored these students because they haven't been seen as real students. They've been seen as kind of like these one off charity cases where there's not a ton of institutional resources put behind a truly comprehensive and inclusive educational experience. But what we know and what the research tells us is that all of these different pieces, the leadership opportunities, the activism opportunities, obviously the academic opportunities are all part of the process that we as as researchers, as practitioners, stand behind from a theoretical standpoint and from a practitioner standpoint. And so I want to kind of put that out there as the umbrella, because the impact of us not doing anything, of not changing that definition of how we look at our student population and maintaining the same kinds of policies, because it's easier to do that, you know, it's just, it's, it's ludicrous in its even suggestion, because we are not at a place where things are working well. We are not we are not at a place where things are functioning at the at their optimal capacity. And so if we continue to do nothing, you know, as my grandfather, my late grandfather used to say, garbage in, garbage out. If we continue to do bad policy and enact bad policy and procedures, we will continue to have the same tragic situations and circumstances that litter our news feeds, our timelines, our televisions, day in and day out with no respite for any of us. In addition, if we are only going to make reactive changes, we are only addressing the symptoms of the root cause of the issue. It is as if, you know, someone has a cold and you are just going to give them Kleenex for their runny nose. You're not going to do anything to address maybe you know, uh, a virus or anything else that is causing this runny nose, you're just like, here's some Kleenex. It's also only half ply. So it's not going to work that well. Good luck. May the odds be ever in your favor. And so, you know, we have to understand that these reactionary solutions are, are incomplete and they're beneath us. If we're going to be honest about this conversation, those of us that are in higher ed, whether we are professors, instructors, researchers, student leaders, some combination of all of the above, 
reactionary solutions are beneath us and we need to do better as individuals. We need to do better collectively and we need to be encouraging our colleagues to do better. We have to have those tough conversations with the colleagues who aren't doing anything, right? Because that's the other part of this conversation. Mm -hmm. There are those of us on the call and and our networks who are engaged, who are active, who are building that power and leadership in communities. And then there are other folks who are doing nothing, right? Because they benefited from playing the game of capitalism and the game of diplomacy and the game of acculturation. And they have much more to lose, they feel, um, than, than perhaps they feel we have to lose. When we all have very substantial risks that we take, when we step out on these limbs and say the things that we say. Um, and so I think there's this larger call um, for higher ed as, a, as an institution, as, as a total institution, if we're going to use Goffman terms, right? There's this larger institution of higher ed that needs to be pushed in a whole different direction, because we also need to problematize this dichotomy, I think, that higher institutions and law enforcement are separate, and that they're on these opposing ends of the life spectrum. Again, if we look theoretically at Goffman's work, and we look at how total institutions work, higher ed institutions and prisons are far more alike than anyone wants to mention. Higher ed institutions have very specific ways that they expect students to show up in class. They have ways that they expect students to present themselves. They have ways that they expect students to speak up, speak out, push back. Prisons have the same thing. They have rules that residents need to abide by. They have rules by which residents can and cannot make contributions or make suggestions, et cetera. These are the same. Yeah. And so if we are not problematizing the symmetry between these two practices, then we really have not begun to address the deeper, deeper issues um, that lead to a lot of the situations that bring on the need for this kind of conversation. Um, am I okay with time? Sometimes yeah, I, keep going. And I get really, I get really razzle-dazzled with myself. Um, and so, you know, I think that one of the things that we also need to consider as we broaden our scope of how we talk about our institution student population and how we recognize the symmetry between higher ed institutions and the carceral state, we need to start remembering that our incarcerated students are also citizens. Despite the fact that they are not treated that way, they are in fact citizens and they are able to participate in their own kinds of ways in their in the leadership in their communities, leadership within their facilities, leadership on their block. And if we're not able to recognize those contributions that incarcerated students make to the communities as they define them, then we are also missing that opportunity to bring them into the work that is even representative on the broader campus. And so, yes, incarcerated students can write to legislators about legislation that's up for public hearing that campus students are also writing testimony for. Yes, we can have politicians visit students inside the same way we have politicians come onto campus and give keynotes. These things have to happen with our incarcerated students as well. Otherwise, we're not doing right by them in these educational opportunities. Um, and so I'll stop there because 
There's just so much to talk about. I mean, there's a lot to talk about related to student leadership and activism. And I think it's it's great that you bring that kind of component to it, because I think that the direction I want to go now next is with Jael and thinking a little bit about student activism and what students are demanding and how often the needs on college and university campuses are expressed by students. Um, can you talk a little bit about in your role as student body president um, at the University of Minnesota, what were some of the shifts that occurred? And like, as you engaged with your uh, students on your campus and representing them, how did you go about doing that in, in making sure that voices were heard? Because clearly Aaron's saying, obviously, we, everyone sh- everyone's voice should be heard here. No, absolutely. I would love to. And Anne, first, like, thank you so much for bringing that up. I don't think that's discussed enough. I actually don't think the point is honestly ever brought up, um, mm-hmm. especially yeah. in Minneapolis. I don't, I wouldn't say that that's been heard or discussed about what that looks like or if the university truly acknowledges um, those students. And so thank you so much for bringing that. And again, I want to mention like these discussions are not new, right? When you look back to 1923, like Florida A&M, when they were protesting, they did a three-month protest, and we're talking boycotting everything, and you can think about just, like, what they had to do, or even, like, the Children's March, right? We're talking about young children, um, 1963, coming out of school, doing these different things, or South Carolina State University, I remember they had a protest and they actually ended up having, I can't remember the year, but they had um, police presence come on and they actually sprayed fire and killed students and it later became known as Orangeburg Massacre. So we're we're thinking about all these activists that have been on campus or these um, organizing that has been present and you can only do but like honor that, right? Like we've come from so far and we, we stand on the back of so much. But when we're looking at campuses today and as student body president, um, when the murder of George Floyd happened, thank you, 1968, yes, when the, um, when the murder of George Floyd happened um, on our campus, I was, I had actually became student body president that January, and I was the first Black student to be student body, undergraduate student body president, and I couldn't sit there in that role and say, well, I'm here now, this is a positional place, and it was just like, oh, okay, well, this is, we're just going to wait to hear from the university, and I remember when I eventually watched the video, I was like, we don't need the Minneapolis Police Department on our campus any longer. There's just no reason you can prove to me or there's no justification that you can give to say that their values align with our university values. And so either our university needs to take our values off of our website and we need to stop saying we, we care about diversity, equity, inclusion, or we need to remove the Minneapolis Police Department from our campus. Those two cannot exist in tandem. And it was just so frustrating because to me it was, these are tuition paying students. I don't care if they're 6.9% Black students. Each one of those students is still paying tuition. We know that state dollar funding has gone down. We know that our, when our universities are not operating with high revenue. It's your students and it's your taxpayer dollars from the state. So if you are telling me that your revenue streams don't matter to you as they do, then you need to be worried about what these students are telling you. And what students were saying is the very people that you're quote unquote saying are protecting us, we actually need protection from, right? We're saying that we don't want to see them here. And I wrote the letter and asked them to sever ties with the Minneapolis Police Department 24 hours because I didn't think there needed to be another discussion. I didn't think I needed to go again, make the case that I'd consistently been making years prior. I didn't think that students needed to consistently have to be in such vulnerable positions and explain their stories over and over and over 
over again. So you could capitalize off of them, but then not actually serve them. And so it was a matter of saying that safety is not this objective measure. I don't see a fence and say, now I'm safe. I'm safe from, because I trust that whatever's on the other side of that fence, I'll be protected from. Same thing with policing. It's not a matter of objectively seeing a police officer and saying, I feel safe with your presence. It's saying that we trusted them. Students are saying, we do not trust our police officers on our campus at all. And understanding that at some point, the university had to understand they don't get to be excluded, right? Issues of race, it almost seems like when it was beneficial, we'll talk about it, right? Black History Month, absolutely. Let's have all the discussions in the world. What speaker can we bring in? What what can we do? Where can we hang up our flag and show that this is what we cared about? But when it came down to, can we institute a class on anti-racism? It was, whoa, 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 I don't know if our students will really take to that, right? When we talked about what are you going to do about your tenure policies, it was, whoa, 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 we've had this for so many years, right? When we talked about what are your hiring policies, what are you doing in regards to your staff versus your tenured faculty, it was, well, 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 you know, this is kind of, they don't have a master's and we get into bureaucracy, we get into respectability politics and we go around around in circles and we actually don't serve the students. And so it was a matter of saying that you know, our police are on our campus. They're actually not preventing crime. A lot of the times I hear like, well, we need police. Police are reactionary. They come after something has happened. They come to respond to something, but they aren't stopping things from happening. When you look at the the crimes on campus, quote unquote, that have happened, they're actually not happening on campus. They're happening around campus, but they're not happening on our actual campuses and specifically to Minneapolis. And so it was as student body president, I couldn't sit there and let this happen, knowing what our students are going to, knowing the access I had to our administration, because the, it for no longer could we just sit there and allow this to happen. Murder to everyone should be a nonpartisan issue. It should not be a left or a right issue. It should not be, well, this is where I murder is nonpartisan and George Floyd was murdered. I, it, sometimes I'm almost baffled at the fact that we were discussing that. So it's, a, it's getting our administrations to understand that if you're actually in education, if you're in a place where you're supposed to be doing something that's transformative, if you're in a place where you're actually in it to change lives, if you're actually in it to shift society, then you, as everybody else, should understand that our police presence on campus is not what is supporting our students. Our police presence on campus is not what goes to ensure that our students understand that. And that includes our white students as well. You don't get to just talk to the black students and be like, this is what's going on in our black and brown students. You need to let the, our white students understand these systems of privilege and oppression that exist because they shouldn't be learning about them later. Like I said, I think it should start in K through 12, but if you're in a position as a university, an institution of learning, that should be your role is to educate. It's to be pragmatic. It's to give different perspectives and not be just willing to go along with the status quo. Yeah. Yeah. I want to pick on the the word safety here for just a moment, because I think that that in particular, you mentioned it multiple times, and I'm sure the conversations um, with your student government and with your student body kind of came around to that for whom and what does that mean? How does that align with both sense of belonging and and feeling safe as an individual um, and also the kind of fullness of humanity um, that each of us have a right to live um, you know, whether you're a student or whether anywhere. So can you talk a little bit about when you say safety, what were some of the conversations that happened around that word in particular? No, that's, that's a great question. And I, I think 
obviously there was pushback in my ass to remove the police from our campus because people were saying, well, now I don't feel safe, right? And I, I would often encourage students your lived experience or what you've gone through is valid to you. I would also encourage you to take a moment and empathize with your students on campus who are telling you for years and for so long when they say a police officer, it's not safety, right? We start teaching police etiquette to our young boys and girls when they're three years old. Like, I want you to start to think about the very different life that you are not living, right? When we talk about safety, it means that when I walk, whatever measure is in place almost is going to be a barrier or be my defense in front of me. We don't get that from the police. We get that from each other, right? Who, whoever has had our back mm. is us. When people are talking about when I'm walking home, I'm, we're, we're not saying, well, if something happens, I'm going to call the police. I'm going to be on the phone with my friend to make sure I'm okay, right? When we're talking about why, you know, my brothers push me on the inside when we're walking, it's to make sure they're my line of defense. When we're talking about call me when you get home or call me when you're on your way home, that's a line of defense. And that's what I'm talking about with safety. We're not getting that from the police. We're not getting that from law enforcement. We're not getting that from the state we're getting it from each other it's a very communal thing so when we were talking about the conversation in student government I think people were scared because it's different I'm asking you to do something you might have not seen before I'm asking you to think outside of the sphere that's been offered to you I'm asking you to look outside our western politics and our society and start to think about what does it actually look like to have community safety no it doesn't mean it's not a risk I'm not saying it will be perfect but what we have right now is not what we can continue to have. The murder of black and brown people is just simply unacceptable. It's disgusting. And it's reached a point and has been at that point for so long in which we cannot tolerate it anymore. And so I think it was a matter of telling our students that I understand your perspective and you will, you don't lose my respect necessarily, but I need you to understand that this also cannot stand, right? We don't have to actually agree on it. I'm not looking for consensus in regards to my life, right? Or the threat of the lives of my loved ones. This is a matter that has to actually be addressed. Thank you so much. And, and I would just add, you know, there's um, this often false equivalency. So when we talk about, you know, all students feeling safe, it's sort of all lives matters, a discourse that really doesn't recognize how we are differently vulnerable to state and state sanctioned violence, right? And we see that that often drives a lot of the conversation, as has been evident in certain, um, you know, reportings about how universities are trying to handle or deal or grapple right, with this question of safety. Um, and they're saying, well, if we remove, you know, police, then certain folks won't feel safe. If we keep them, they won't feel safe. So, like, we don't know what to do. And it's partly because we aren't recognizing that um, level of marginalization or minoritization that happens in these settings as a process, right? We attribute those to individual peoples as labels or as identity categories, opposed to understanding how we at an institutional level are deeply involved in you know, creating the climate and conditions for policing to be an accepted norm or a way of operating. Um, I think I wanna tug a bit more on um, this differentiation that I'm hearing uh, Jaya, you, you speak about too, is that you know many institutions are responding to the extent that, well, we haven't killed anybody. So therefore, like we don't have a problem here. And one of the things that we know from some preliminary data that's coming out from the Healthy Mind Survey, which is fairly common um, now within a number of university campuses, but has been recently administered here, is that uh, psychological and emotional safety and well-being are amongst the top of the list and the, the biggest concerns for many students who are saying, I don't feel safe with the presence of policing um, even so much as, you know, we have armed police that will show up to a cultural center for any number of reasons. But if I'm a black student in a cultural center and a police officer with a gun shows up, I'm going to be immediately concerned. 
right? Or I'm at least going to have to live with the psychological trauma of considering what might happen if I don't do whatever is considered to be the right thing, right? And I think that that's like criti critically important for us to understand that it's not simply the metric should be whether life or death, you know, is happening. Like safety has to be a precondition, right? It can't be something that's after the fact or reactionary as, as Jill, as you mentioned it with uh, policing as a whole. So I think we have to consider, you know, the ways that we interpret and understand safety, basically, you know, to the extent that safety has not been determined for many of us as marginalized people, based on what the state can or cannot do. And in fact, the state has been the primary arbiter of injustice against us. So why would we feel safe with the presence of, you know, more or less an apparatus that extends that level of power and renders us more vulnerable? Yeah. I would also like to chime in, you know, I think in this conversation, in any conversation about abolition, there is the the sort of necessary question of, okay, well, if we're not going to have cops in communities and on campus, what do we do? And I, part of the first step, which, you know, Mariame Kaba talks about all the time, is we have to divorce ourselves. It, exactly. <laughs> we have to divorce ourselves from this societal ideology that equates vengeance and accountability, that equates punishment and accountability. Until we do that, we will not ever be able to come up with a system that is rooted in community accountability and restorative practices and restorative justice, which is ultimately, I think, where we need to be going if we are talking about abolition. But we cannot make that movement until that separation has sure. happened, until people are educated to understand that this level of punishment, this level of literal vengeance, this is literal eye for an eye and sometimes your whole life for an eye, right? Because there's, we, we won't talk about sentencing. That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> but until we are able to see that, that it is this ideological false equivalency that drives so much of the fear mongering that we have as opposition until we understand that we are going to still be in this place where activists, practitioners, scholars, students are, are pushing, are pushing, are pushing, and we're using data to support our claims. You know, we can look at, we can look at ClearYak data all day. And we can talk about how those data, you know, indicate X, Y, and Z. But when you have this fear-based equivalency that is the root of an entire system that is like largely autonomous and lacks accountability, then you start to see where we've got to start picking away at that poisonous foundation. Thank you so much. Um, Let's shift gears just a moment because I do want to bring back uh, the the point about the audience for this podcast, right? So student affairs, educators, uh, those who work with student leaders, student activists, um, and their administrators, right, uh, who are listening today. Uh, Jude, could you talk a little bit about some advice you might have um, for folks who are working with student activists and the conversations that they might be having where they can leverage their positions to support students um, like Jill, who who is taking kind of bold uh, steps for change. Sure, I, I think I'd also like to just respond to like some of the great thoughts that were just shared. I think, you know, for me in the terms of the question about, you know, what, what does safety look like, um, you know, I think also higher education leaders need to begin bridging whatever plans or, or 
symposium plans that they have for racial equity, diversity, et cetera, on their campus with, with also then what, what is campus public safety? Mm. And I've heard, you know, from many people, um, you know, people are at a loss sometimes on college campuses with what to do when they experience a hate crime or when they experience bias. And so to the extent that that has real consequences for marginalized group safety, when we acknowledge that there is a lack of, of resources for them to go to, but you have the police, you know, there's a mismatch there where resources are directed and also what the university thinks uh, counts as like a safety issue or a safety priority, if that makes sense. Um, and, you know, I think it's important to think about too, when students of color feel that the cultural center is a haven for them, not the police department. I've never heard anyone say that police departments where you go to feel safe or at home on campus. Um, and then acknowledging that all campuses have a cultural center. Sometimes the cultural center is a room. Sometimes the cultural center is a person in an office suite somewhere else in a general building on campus. You know, there's a, there's a mismatch of resources there, I would argue. Um, and so, uh, so going back to the question you posed to me about student affairs educators, you know, how can folks in student affairs be supportive of student activists right now calling for abolition? I think one, it starts with looking at yourself and being, uh, starting that self, hard self-examination of like, what are your own biases or your own thoughts or your own beliefs around policing and campus safety? And what does that mean for you and for your role? Um, so I think starting with that self-examination of just what are your core beliefs about, you know, this issue? And then two, I think, how does that then translate into what do you believe about your role and questioning what you are required to do in your role? Um, I think for me, a couple of things come to mind is like, you know, in residential life, what are the policies and procedures that require the immediate unquestioned use, use of campus police? And does that actually make sense for the situation at hand? Um, you know, in terms of my you know, own research, I've spoken to students who are resident advisors and oftentimes they feel that their own approach as undergraduates trained, you know, by professional staff, you know, that, you know, they're required in a situation to call the campus police officer and they report observing just a very different, unhelpful, undevelopmental, not, not holistic student approach, right, from the campus police officer, the professional in charge of that, who now becomes in charge of the situation with what, you know, this RA would have done with what they were trying to do before the situation got too uh, big to handle and what they're trained to do by another set of professionals on campus, right? And they have shared with me that they feel unsupported when the campus police officers come to support a student in distress. Um, so I think one, you know, how can, so in this case, you know, how could residential life professionals start reevaluating and reconsidering the ways in which campus law enforcement um, has to be employed? Um, you know, I think also something to think about is the fact that campus uh, police officers are are not only enforcing you know, you know, public laws, but they're also enforcing the student code of conduct. So in many ways they're enforcing a dual set of rules upon students, mm -hmm. depending on you know, the situation and also how they approach the situation. And so um, I think that's something for an institution overall to, to reconsider and to think about you know, the, the ways in which campus police officers sanction students, um, again, in this, in this dual set of, of, of rules and, and, and conduct codes. Um, yeah, I think, you know, for me, I think I'd like to just say that in the debates that have been happening this year, you know, the focus is, of course, on the police officers themselves and campus chiefs of police. But I think um, what, who needs to be more held accountable, who needs to be part more of the conversation also identified and taken to task, so to speak, are also the administrators who ultimately these police officers and chiefs of police are responsible for. And the administrators who set the context of which these departments get to exist, right? And what they enforce and what they don't enforce. 
And so I think in terms of just addressing climate for all students, staff, faculty, the local, com local communities, you know, administrators, the president, the vice president, provost, et cetera, they need to, these roles need to start being, uh, you know, I think front and center of these debates and not just, you know, to me, what I often see students vis-a-vis -vis a, a police chief, right? Um, and so these other administrators are also important roles for all, actually altering what needs to be altered structurally and systematically uh, with, you know, policing issues on college campuses. Yeah, and when we talk about college campuses, sometimes we um, lump every kind of campus into one box, right? But we know there's major differences based on two-year institutions, four-year institutions, public, private, um, technical schools. Charles, can you talk a little bit about what role campus safety and policing um, might look like or how it might differ from campus to campus? And then, Erin, I'd love to hear more about um, how this also translates to um, incarcerated students. Yeah, um, I mean, I think, you know, there's a lot to be said for things that are distinguishable between the institution mm -hmm. types, but also things that are very similar and familiar, right? And so I think one of the things to consider with some of our two-year institutions, I think it will depend, one, the extent to which they are part of a large system, right? We can think about the California Community Colleges as something that's relatively big and significant by comparison to some other smaller um, or more isolated two-year institutions. Um, and so resources are very different, right? Um, but when I think about, you know, our work in L.A. and, and my time at uh, USC with Jude, um, something that was always apparent was how our two-year systems often had uh, contracted in similar ways as was the case at the University of Minnesota for supplemental services, but actually for their core component of law enforcement to be allocated out to, say, the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department, which is the case at L.A. Trade Tech, right? And so you have even... Um, perhaps less of a clear distinguishing factor of both, you know, where campus starts and where it ends. And we see this permeability happening as, you know, institutions continue to grow and develop, but we see it especially in our two-year sort of commuter-based systems. And I think one of the misunderstandings, right, is that even our four-year institutions still compose primarily of our quote-unquote traditionally aged college students, 18 to 24, who are living on campus. And we know to be true that the changing ecology of post-secondary education mm -hmm. has required much, much more commuter students to be a part of that process that are regularly traversing those boundaries. And in this you know, sort of COVID-19 space that many folks never even set foot on campus, right, in any regular capacity, as even as a new faculty member, I've probably been to campus here only three times. And that's, you know, working here full time. And being on a fellowship next year, I won't even be near and around campus. So I'll have two years of not even being here. And there are many students, right, in a similar way when we're thinking about Aaron's work and others who are learning and engaging remotely, right, but are still very much vulnerable and susceptible to various forms of conduct, uh, codes of conduct that lead to police involvement, even in a stay-at-home, learn-from-home situation, right? Um, and so I think we have to consider, again, what are the relationships and networks that are allowing for just sort of like a carceral society to exist? Right. Um, I think in addition, we know that there are somewhat, as we would consider, uh, articulation agreements between two years and four years with regard to how students can, you know, sort of effectively transfer into the four year system. There are similar articulation agreements and relationships between municipal and college university police. Right. Um, and if you think of it as a Venn diagram, in some extent, you might think of these sections where they have separate jurisdictions, but closer and closer as we look those jurisdictions are becoming more blurred and more overlapped. Whereas we've seen in the case most recently in Minnesota, right, that the University of Minnesota Police Department was actually deployed to Brooklyn Center in the wake of yet another shooting in Minneapolis in full SWAT gear to go to Jude's point about the 1033 program. So as we're looking across these institution types, it's always thinking about how is the state involved? What is the relationship there? How has law enforcement become so 
um, ubiquitous even in the how we do learning, how we do teaching, how we do education, um, that there really aren't as many differences with regards to the fundamental operations and what they, what they actually do. I think a lot too about, you know, these two-year institutions being access points for most of the marginalized populations that we talk about in higher ed. So they're already coming into a space as members of vulnerable communities who already have an existing relationship or history with policing because of how we treat those communities. And if we think about Carla Shedd's work in the context of K-12 and extend it into higher education, we can acknowledge a carceral continuum that for many black and brown students in particular, those who are low income and otherwise vulnerable, may have experiences in educational settings with police from its earliest preschool all the way through college. I remember hearing a very distinctive story in my early uh, months here uh, from a colleague with regard to a student who had been a justice involved youth before they came to college, um, was I think on a probationary status with the state and as a virtue of a desk attendant who asked them for their ID, their student ID, and them not having it, called the police. The police then come ending up arresting this student who then gets dinged as a result of their conditions for their probation of having been involved with police and then is forced back into incarceration all because of them not having an ID to play basketball at a rec center, which we know you could verify students, you know, in terms of who they are in many other ways, right, without involving wow. the police. So again, like the mechanisms and the functioning of policing as an apparatus of the state that sort of incubated and sustained and legitimized by college and universities is something that spans the boundaries of how we think about these clear demarcations. Because again, there's an erosion between what is considered campus, what is considered a community, and police are really left to determine in some regards, both the spatial, but also the symbolic boundaries between who we consider insiders and who we consider outsiders. And I think that is probably ever more difficult and challenging, not just at two-year institutions, but those that have other sort of open access type um, framings, right? If you don't have like formalized gates, like say you do at USC, but your campus is just in the city, right? Mm, you have yeah. patrols that sort of work in that particular way. And it's the same way at many of our two years that are in fact, open access, open enrollment are often located in spaces that are easily accessible to the broader public as they should be, right? But then this determination of who we believe uh, deserves to be here, right? And if we believe that you're in the role that you're supposed to be in, there have been many a times when I was at USC um, where I've been, you know, questioned not only to about whether I was a student, but whether I belonged on campus at all for any number of reasons, the majority of which are certainly racialized in particular ways, right? So we have to then question about this boundary making, this boundary enforcement, who we consider to be a member of a college or university community and what that looks like and in ways it looks very, very different and really, again, just mirrors the broader public uh, that has already created its own demarcations of social identity um, and other forms of power that are operating. So Aaron, we're talking about different types of institutions, but definitely different types of students also. Can you kind of extend this into the populations that you're serving? Sure. You know, I, one of the pieces that we rarely talk about in, in terms of education that's provided inside is that there are many DOCs, departments of corrections, so these sort of state agencies that in fact contract with community colleges to do adult basic ed and GED work, right? So again, this, this, this symbiotic relationship of higher education and the carceral state is in many instances contractualized through this agreement where community colleges, again, that are open access, open enrollment institutions are providing educational opportunities on the K-12 level inside of prisons already. And even with that relationship, there is not, there is just an egregiously insufficient amount of attention paid to the student affairs piece 
of an incarcerated student's educational experience. There's so much that they do not have access to. And that's, you know, that's outside of, oh, there's no technology or, oh, there's no this or, oh, there's no that. A lot of times people will use those as the excuses because again, it's too hard, right? But, but what we have to do is say, yes, it is hard. And yes, it still needs to be done, especially as Pell has been, you know, reinstated, at least legislatively in the Consolidated Appropriations Act and has a deadline of implementation of July 1st, 2023. Advocates are pushing for earlier implementation. There's going to be an influx of federal money into these institutions, mostly two-year institutions, but some four-year publics and and many more privates than I think four-year publics. And so there will be this opportunity for budget to no longer be the excuse, right? So schools will often talk about how they don't have money for, you know, like Jael Jael was mentioning, they don't have money for someone to teach um, an anti-racism class. They don't have money to extend their searches for administrators to um, pockets of the population that are majority black and brown. They don't have money for this. They don't have money for that except they have money to build new athletic fields and name fancy buildings after slave owners. They have money for that, but they don't have money to expand student affairs programs, even for their students on campus. And so we we're going to have to push those institutions to say, if you are accessing these Pell dollars on behalf of these incarcerated students, you need to be providing the same level of student affairs services to those incarcerated students as you are to your free world students. So you need to start talking to the DOCs about office hours and how you can do that. You need to start talking to the DOC about how you can provide academic advising, career advising for those who are getting out, or even career advising for those who want a better job in the facility. You need to talk about how you're going to provide X, Y, and Z, student groups, leadership, publishing opportunities, all of these different pieces that we take for granted on free world campuses, schools are going to have to figure out how to provide those services to incarcerated students, to do that in partnership with DOCs, and to do it in a way that sensibly, authentically, sincerely embeds the student's voice into the creation of the programs because the uh, there's so many pieces that we rarely talk about but one of the others is that for the most part if you are in an adult if you're teaching in an adult facility these are folks your students are generally in their 30s 30s 40s maybe 50s maybe 60s these are people who have been out of the traditional classroom sometimes for decades and so while they may lack sort of um, recent exposure to traditional higher educational opportunities, what they do not lack is a lived experience that tells them the environments in which they learn best and what tools they need to learn better, to learn faster, to learn more strategically. And so schools just really have to do better and a department needs to monitor that. The ed department needs to hold those institutions accountable who are accessing Pell dollars for incarcerated students so that we aren't having these 
predatory institutions that just take students' money and don't give them any educational opportunity that is worthwhile. And so while it's not so much about campus policing with incarcerated students, because they are already under this very explicit mm -hmm. system of surveillance and supervision, it is about how we build out a broader, more comprehensive notion of student affairs with our student population and make sure that we build incarcerated students into the plans that we create for them at an institutional level. Yeah, you know, I think I would love to explore this further on another episode because I think that there's some complexities around serving um, students in, in who are incarcerated in, in ways that I don't think are population student affairs educators have ever thought about. Um, and also post-incarceration, right? So like, what does it look like when they arrive on campus and how do we better make sure every student feels they have a sense of belonging um, within our, without our institutions, whether they're online, you know, and whatever age they are too, right? Like, I think that was another really important point you make. Um, so let's, Let's put a pin on that topic because Erin, I want to have you back uh, to talk more about that specifically and hear about campuses that are doing this well too. Um, and of course, we always have uh, so little time, um, but thank you all for your, for your energy and your enthusiasm. And I want to end as we always do on Student Affairs Now by asking the question, um, as, as a result of the conversation or as a result of things that you're thinking about in your work outside of um, this conversation, what are you pondering, hoping for, uh, troubling uh, now? And so, uh, Jude, we'll start with you today. Okay, wow, thank you. Um, well, Aaron, I just want to say I've been really inspired by your ideas that you've shared, your thoughts. And so I think what I'll say is that what's, what I'm pondering is how can student affairs educators you know, who are very, you know, spirited and excited about their work, how can they actually do that work with students at the center and not the institution? Because mm. um, I think oftentimes we are upholding the institution um, as we are transacting with students. Yeah. So how can they serve students and not the institution? Thank you, thank you. Jael. Yeah, um, also I have two things too. One from Erin, I'm thinking honestly about what higher education can do to reduce recidivism um, instead of what sometimes our society almost does to support it, right? Like what, what can higher education do to ensure that we're actually supporting these students um, in that integration into society and, and making sure that they feel like they are part of institutions so they are coming back into something. Um, and I, I think that's honestly so far, I'm so happy like I just heard all of this because I, I hadn't heard it before. Um, and the other thing is just our, our faculty, staff, student affairs, anyone in institution understanding that the humanity of your students has to come before their instruction, right? You can't just put them into seats and tell them what you need to do, right? I'm your student for four years, but I'll be a Black woman all my life. So understanding that it goes beyond the four walls of their institution and that humanity has to come first. Wow, thank you, thank you, thank you. Dr. Corbett. Yeah, this has been a great conversation. I'm just, um, y'all are dope. Um, so my, my final thought, one is it, just thinking about what Jael mentioned, so much of the research that's out about the benefits of providing education inside has focused on the recidivism paradigm, which in and of itself is very problematic 
because what it does is it centers the efficacy of the educational program on whether or not the carceral state decides Mm -hmm. it wants to, as we heard in Charles's story, as there's a, you know, I had one of my students who was picked up on an alleged technical violation. Um, There are forces outside of the control of higher ed that are actually more influential in determining whether or not someone recidivates Mm -hmm. and also states define recidivism differently. And so we're not even having a conversation about the same term. And so I want to thank you just for reminding me of that because I usually say it and I'm real venomous about it and I had completely forgot about forgotten about it. So thank you. Um, The the second piece that that I'm just always kind of taking with me, you know, comes from the the adage of the the tying up of all of our liberation together you know so much of of what i do so much of what practitioners in higher ed and prison do is about liberation right it's it it may be about physical liberation you know how are we making sure that our students are able to get out of physical custody but so much more is about kind of mental spiritual transformative liberation and how we are able to serve as you know resources to students who are undergoing this kind of larger transformative process. And so I would like for folks to kind of walk away from this conversation, at least as it relates to higher ed and prison, that if you are not, and this is one of my students wrote this, if you are not walking into those doors with his liberation in mind, then just turn around and go back to your car and go home. And liberation means we are providing comprehensive educational opportunities. We are looking at advocacy. We are looking at um, activism. We are looking at organizing. We are looking at all of these different ways for people to be free. And if that is not at the center of your instructional methodology and of your just overall ideological praxis, then this work is not for you. And maybe you can do something else. Wow, that's really powerful. Thank you so much. Dr. Davis, your final thoughts. I mean, I have so many. I would just echo my colleagues that this has been a brilliant and generative conversation. Um, and, you know, for me, the thing that's top of my mind coming in is, is the same thing going out, and that's abolition. Um, you know, in the spirit of Ella Baker, I woke up this morning with my mind on freedom. And because I believe in freedom, I cannot rest until it comes. And so I'm just very thankful. Um, and I think deep, deeply grateful really for those who have come forward to to engage in this conversation with us that helps me uh, continue to understand that none of this work can or should be done alone, that we can only get free together. Um, And I think that, you know, we really have an opportunity now more so than ever to push the cause of abolition, freedom, liberation, transformation um, in a way that we've never been able to. So one again, thank you, Heather, for the opportunity for us to bring it to this particular forum, to all my colleagues who continue to do so much tremendous and courageous work. And I hope that we can just continue to push the conversation forward and get some things actually done, because I think we're, we're on the cusp. You know, we just have to continue to push and not let up. Thank you so much. Uh, this conversation far exceeded my expectations and in being enthusiastic, I'm, I'm leaving this today with just so much gratitude for each of you and what you shared um, and what you brought to our listeners. So thank you for your time and your emotional labor um, and for all of the um, words of wisdom that you shared on Student Affairs Now. 
Also, thank you to our sponsors, uh, Stylist Publishing and Anthology. We so appreciate your support. Um, also, I want to give a huge shout out to Natalie Ambrosi, the production assistant for our podcast, who does all of the behind the scenes work to make us look good and sound good. Um, and if you are listening today and not already receiving our weekly newsletter, please visit our website, scroll to the bottom of the homepage and add your email to our MailChimp list. Uh, while you're there, you can check out our growing archives. Um, and as you listen today, if you found this content to be useful, we'd love it if you share this episode with your networks. Um, again, I'm Heather Shea. Thanks again to all of you who joined us, joined me today and everybody who's listening and watching. Make it a great week, everyone.